0: This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
1: The Think Tank. Well, we have a new president, and uh, uh, obviously we cannot ignore that, but we're trying not to repeat here on The Think Tank things that you've probably seen uh hundred times over. We're not going to uh, dissect the uh, inauguration piece by piece, but we're going to take an element where uh, I think it's fair to say that a lot of things are going to change dramatically, and that's the area of foreign policy. Uh, one of the key messages of Joe Biden's inaugural speech wasn't directed at Americans and those abroad who might have thought that this country has lost its way. He suggested that recent events show the United States' Resilience in the face of these challenges. And I quote, here's my this is the president. So here's my message to those beyond our borders. America has been tested and we've come out stronger for it. We'll repair our alliances and engage with the world again, not to make yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's. The message seemed to be this was a blip. And you can trust us to work with you again. Our guest is Daniel Rothenberg. He's a foreign policy expert, professor of practice at the School of Politics and Global Studies, and co-director on the Center on the Future of War. Welcome to the show.
2: Uh, Thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be back.
1: Uh, Having heard uh, what what Joe Biden said in his inauguration, part of which I just quoted, uh, what do you think for our allies particular? And others as well. In particular, for our allies to buy the notion, uh, is America back and what does it take for them to trust us?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, it, it's hard to know what it means to say, is America back? I mean, the world is changing and any serious move forward, any serious understanding of U.S. foreign policy has to take into consideration things that are shifting. It can't be a looking back to some previous moment when the U.S. was so so clearly dominant. I mean, in 1950, the U.S. was, you know, half of the world's GDP. By the end of the Cold War, it was something like a quarter of the world's GDP. It's down to a seventh of the world's GDP. So to say that the U.S. is back, it depends what that means. I think a clear message is that the U.S. has shifted its approach in terms of allies and quite possibly in terms of adversaries, but it only really makes sense and would be productive in light of just how different the U.S. place in the world is now than,
1: say, in the past. Well, let me get specific. Let me hone in on one very big area of our foreign policy, Western Europe and NATO. Uh, we were the backbone to NATO, and basically uh, during the Trump administration, there were a lot of moves that had the effect of undermining. The confidence of Germany, Britain, and yeah. France about how reliable an ally we could, could they count on us? Uh, we offered, in particular, a nuclear shield. We told most of those countries, except, exception being France and Britain, each of which has minor nuclear arsenals. But essentially, we told Western Europe you don't have to develop these weapons because we're there. What do you see about our our, our the evolution of our relationship with, with the rest of NATO?
2: It's a great question. I mean it's it's certainly the public discourse and the public stances were shocking. It was sort of unimaginable previously, and certainly in the foreign policy establishment to take such a critical approach with key allies like Germany, France, the UK. Um, I think it's worth reflecting on what NATO's what NATO is a part of. I mean, it really isn't that long ago when European states, say Germany and France, and Germany and the UK. The, the idea that these states would work together, create a union. Given, granted, we've seen Brexit has shifted some meaning of that union. But the idea that you'd create uh, a, a lasting, stable economic integration, social cultural integration, and peace in Western Europe—it's an amazing accomplishment in the post-Second World War era. And of course, NATO—you know—was a big part of that. The only time Article Five, uh, uh, you know, was was was. Um was used was to defend U.S. interests with military mobilization.
1: In Article five being the, the section that said if one of us is attacked, the remainder will come to our exactly. Our I mean the, the core value
2: of NATO right was was mutual self protect mutual protection among all of the NATO member states, which is a to any outside
1: act. adversary. You attack one of these countries, all of the other countries are going to jump in, and we always assumed that that meant if the Russians set a foot into Germany, that with that Americans would be there and and the one time when it's actually implemented, we are the nation being helped.
2: Exactly right. It's it's sort of a, it's a notable moment and certainly Americans, you know, should be cognizant of that. Um, many are, many are not. Um, but, but I, you know, NATO has been an amazingly powerful organization. I don't think four years of divisive rhetoric and strong claims by the president, by the executive office, can fully undermine those decades of of relationships. Certainly, anybody who knows folks who serve in the U.S. military and have been involved in NATO operations in the past four years knows that many of those joint training operations and many of those communication networks are quite strong, have worked Fine. Um so there's a lot to build on. It's not as if the NATO relationship has withered. Europe is changing for sure. There's all kinds of new challenges. Um it doesn't seem like reaffirming those alliances will be anywhere as, as difficult as some other regions of the world. But uh I think it's still it's it's a shock, and the shock will reverberate for a long time, just how powerful the president, <laughs> the role of the president is, and just how possible it is to have a president step in there and say things that are, you know, that that previously were unimaginable from that
1: office. Let me uh, uh, give you the the Trump argument on NATO. And, And it instinctively, I think, appealed to a lot of Americans. I want to know whether you think that was fair. Trump said essentially to Europe, you're not paying your fair share.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I actually think there's elements of that argument. There, there are many elements of things that that Trump foreign policy sought to do or voiced that are entirely reasonable. The idea that Europe should pay for its security is it's not it's not unreasonable. And in fact, there's an agreement, and there's set set you know a uh, percentages of GDP that are supposed to be paid under the Obama administration. There were many efforts to get all of the NATO members to pony up their portion. You know, some did, some did not. But I think the general point is entirely reasonable. You have a very successful region of the world for the most part. Um, Why shouldn't they pay for the very expensive costs of security? I also don't think that the idea of conceptualizing security as a sort of transactional relationship is productive for the real outcomes we're, we're interested in. I mean, what's the real outcome of NATO and all sorts of other arrangements in Western Europe? It's an extraordinary level of economic and other forms of success in the post-war years in Western Europe, uh, the, the creation of the European Union. Uh, it's extra- extraordinary achievements. If we look at security seriously and we take, we see it as more than just tanks and guns and missiles, then I think the benefit of that relationship is enormous. Even on economic terms, the benefit of creating those alliances is so profound for the u s economy and u s society that we shouldn't just look at it as how much are you paying for soldiers and guns so um, the trump point that that you know those who benefit from security. And have money to pay for it should pay for it is reasonable, but the tone and the style and the discourse was just entirely negative, and I think that 's exactly he seemed to I be
1: did. what I think was was troublesome was he was in effect threatening whether yeah. we would pull out, and I think that caused uh, you know a panic on the other side The and a other general point-
2: question is i mean one interesting thing about the Trump administration, and of course you know that that 's a fading that 's rapidly fading is the the tone was so commonly full of some combination of threats and extraordinary claims of like positivity say with kim jong-un and you know i don't there's very little benefit to taking that tone with your close allies like what it wasn't i don't think practice with a strategic vision it seemed kind of more gut level and frankly it seemed more directed towards a domestic audience at the expense of u.s benefits in U.S. security, which, yeah, you know, it's just not, it's, it's not clear that that's good strategy.
1: We'll return with Daniel Rothenberg talking American foreign policy in the Biden era when we we'll return in just a moment in the big tank.
2: 92.3 FM uh,
1: We are here with Daniel Rothenberg, foreign policy expert. We're talking American foreign policy in the Biden area. In the last segment, we talked about our allies in Western Europe. Uh, let's start. I think our, our clearest cut adversary is Russia. Uh, how do we ignore Putin's attacks on our democracy? Did we just move on? Uh, given that, is rapprochement with them out of the question, or are we doomed to a period of hostility? Your take.
2: It's an interesting question how overt the hostility has to be with with adversaries. So, you know, a lot of what is the public discussion, the public tone, you know, is quite far afield from what's happening behind the scenes. There's little to no chance of open conflict with Russia, that is to say open armed conflict. Um, so that possibility is really on the sideline. Though no, I think you, you mean Russian troops and U.S. Yeah. troops. I mean, yeah. they're shooting in your, Ukraine, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah sure. Sure. And, and, and in Syria, you know, Russian troops played, you know, the deciding factor in the Assad regime's, you know, uh, uh, survival and possibly, you know, at least its state in the moment. My my point is that there's different, there's there's an overt public tone and discussion in terms of an adversary, and then there's like what's going on behind the scenes. So, you know, Russia is not a big player in the world compared to the U.S. on economic terms, on military terms, and yet it's been able to leverage its areas of influence, its areas of control, your point about Ukraine being a strong one, Syria also, in a very effective way for its own interests. Um, It's still a weak player in many respects.
1: Has um, the GDP? I saw one report. It has the GDP of Italy. Sure, right. It's right. it's it's a it's an army with a gas station.
2: And it's a very vulnerable GDP, as you point out. It's it's not a di- diverse, robust economy with a lot of you know richness and complexity. It's 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 based largely on on strong natural resources. So it's a very it's a vulnerable player out there in the world. And in fact, a lot of the vulnerabilities have been have been effectively used by the US with different economic sanctions to individuals closely associated with the Putin regime.
1: If the Um, world went solar, Russia would get crippled, wouldn't it? Excuse me? If the world went solar, Russia would be crippled.
2: I mean it probably will take a while for oil and natural gas producers to be pushed out of the picture, but you know, there the world's energy system is changing and it will keep changing and You know, it's going to affect Russia and Gulf states and others. Right. So um, but for you know, it's an interesting question, just how productive, how successful Russia's been at leveraging its relatively weak position compared to the U.S. in terms of its harm, its ability to project its force in ways that really affect the country.
1: Well, to me, it was kind of like 9-11. They changed the game. They changed the game to our our true weak underbelly was the potential to sow dissension within this country. They weren't going to beat us economically, not in the same league, Uh, militarily constrained options. uh, But the, the weak underbelly was sowing the kind of dissension that they did. I mean, Look at the attack on the Capitol. I'm not saying the Russians did that directly, but they certainly contributed to an environment where somebody could stoke the files and stuff like that could happen.
2: Right. So so this is a deep issue. And it's not just Russia. Right. Because the vulnerabilities of our society, you know, it's the deep The divisions are real people's interest in following, you know, all kinds of narratives about what's really going on, whether it's QAnon or some other you know, story. There, that, there's, it's a fertile ground for that. We can't blame Russia for that, but clearly through the internet, it's possible to do a lot of damage. And then, you know, with the solar wind attack, we don't know the full scope of that, but that's really serious stuff. And it's incumbent upon the new administration to act affirmatively. Maybe a lot of that action may not be visible, but it seems clear that there's a demand to take really serious, very effective action. If it's cyber, we won't see it, those in the public but it has to really hit
1: home. Well, isn't that one of the things about cyber and some of these other modes of attacks? We we are attacked and we got a pretty good idea where it came from. We probably can't prove it, but we can uh, retaliate in an equally stealthy fashion. Sure, which is happening, right? We
2: know that's happening to some degree, but of course, those of us out here without access to that secret information don't know the full extent of it or even have a good sense of it. In fact, the U.S. talks very, in a very limited fashion about its its uh, cyber capacities, particularly its offensive cyber capacities, which are really significant. But um, it seems in, it's incumbent upon the U.S. to make those actions costly in a very overt way, and probably to shift the tone of public discussion, at least to signal to us and others, so those in the U.S. public, that this is a big, that this is a real deal, and it's being responded to in that fashion.
1: And and one of the interesting things about that, I think, is that it's probably to our advantage not to go terribly public on that. Sort of like they hit us surreptitiously. We can respond in kind, uh, equal or more devastating. But on the surface, nothing nothing appears to be happening for fear of stoking kind of a war fervor that would get us into a, a, a vicious kind of cycle.
2: Well, it does, interestingly, require a certain trust in our government, right?
1: Yeah. It requires... We'll return. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about China and the rest of the world uh, when we return in just a moment in the thinking. I down
0: the track He's
2: Think tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
1: We are back with guest David Rothenberg, foreign policy expert. We've been sort of uh, taking a walk around the world. We've talked about Western Europe and Russia, the other adversary. And I'm not sure the extent to which they're, uh, they're, they're certainly a trade adversary, if not in other areas, uh, the nation of China. Uh, I want to start by talking about international trade, and uh, the uh, Trump administration pulled us out of some Pacific trade deals, and China seems to have taken advantage of that, uh, uh, preempting the U.S. role as a primary trading partner in the Pacific Rim. Uh, Do you see a reversal there, or uh, how do you feel about the, the way things look and what we ought to do in that area of the world?
2: So many people in the national security, you know, intellectual world, and in practice and policy world are looking at China as, you know, I mean, it is clearly the rising force in the world. Its economy is enormous Its economy in GDP terms will surpass the economy of the U.S. Its military spending is enormous, even though the U.S. is, is much larger. It's a huge country by almost any measure. And it obviously has an expansive vision in a lot of respects. So, you know, how we understand other countries as adversaries or with some other term. I think it matters what language we use. We should probably be careful about the language, particularly for a country like China, where we have such an intertwined economic uh, economy. We rely on China for so much. China relies on the U.S. for so much. Surely those relationships are profoundly productive, even if they also involve serious levels of of, um, um, confrontation in some cases, and certainly Um, competition. So how do we look at China? You know, complexly, sensitively, carefully. Uh, Pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, by the Trump administration was a big move in that it, you know, at least for a period of time, took the U.S. away from uh, a, a regional partnership whose vision was to challenge Chinese dominance, you know, in the region. You know, it's certainly possible to reimagine and renegotiate something like that. Uh, but obviously, China's busy deepening its economic control over the region. It's also logical. Put yourself in the minds of Chinese. Why shouldn't China be the dominant economic force in the region where it exists? And and why shouldn't it expand and grow in much of the way that Americans are proud of U.S. expansion? So we shouldn't look at Chinese vision of where they see their country going as, as entirely negative, even if it presents serious challenges uh,
1: to the U.S. I think a lot of the the attacks on China have been based on kind of a myth that, uh, as you pointed out, post World War II the U.S. had 50% of the world's GDP. Uh, you could you could get a job with an eighth grade education at GM with benefits and salary amounting to about $75 an hour, and I think it created the myth that actually China, if only we would, you know, uh, cut off trade with China, those jobs are coming back at that kind of pay and and uh that situation is never going to recur because we we can have different trade deals but we are going to have an internationalized economy one way or another
2: of course uh we, we can't stop that. It's possible to create, you know, security-based protections of some industries that you, that you focus on, but the idea that we're going to have a nationally coherent, hermetically sealed economy just is, is not possible, nor is, it, nor is it beneficial. I mean, one thing to look at China, I mean, the world has changed so profoundly since the Second World War, and it, it's true, the U.S. was a far more dominant player overall, but in fact, global wealth, and, and many clear, objectively uh, uh, understandable tests of global well-being have improved enormously. Whether it's life expectancy, you know, children who live to their first birthday and children who live to their fifth birthday, you know, the, the health and well-being of people around the world has increased so incredibly in the last 70 years that we should be proud of and aware of those extraordinary accomplishments. China is a key example. Uh, the well-being in China has improved extraordinarily there is a huge middle class far larger than in the us now in china and because the base is much
1: larger it's not the, larger on percentage but yeah a it's also people, yeah. it's also the number one english-speaking country in the world for that it reason is,
2: it's the it, it is and will be the number one in many respects although none of that necessarily means that its ascendancy in those respects necessarily means the reduction of U.S. well-being. So even if the U.S. percentage of the global GDP is lower now than it was in 1950, overall well-being in the U.S. measured, say, by life expectancy and these sorts of things, access to the things we like, is way higher. Educational achievements are way higher. Many things have gotten better in those ways. Of course, there's all kinds of challenges, and it's incumbent upon the U.S. Probably the best way to challenge Chinese dominance in the world is by improving situations within the US for Americans so that our own internal divisions, our own inequality, our own injustice can be minimized to allow for the sort of growth that will make this country even more stable and a greater competitor in the world. That's a big ask, but that may well be one of the most productive, you know, approaches to domestic to to national security in the US.
1: Now, interestingly, I've heard parallel complaints. On the U.S. side, the complaint is, oh, look at our our uh, international trade balance. You know, we owe them all this money. I've heard from Chinese workers who basically their complaint is, we're working ourselves to death so you guys can have cheap goods. And, of course, they're both right. They're both right. <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, and, and, and to which the answer is, yeah, and things have improved a whole lot in China, as, as you pointed out. China didn't have a middle class and now it does. It's huge. It's not a majority of the country. They got three or four hundred million people uh, who are urbanized and living more or less uh, an American lifestyle, not quite the level of affluence, but living fundamentally a life that we would recognize and uh, you know, uh, shy of a billion in the rural areas, some of whom are still in the 14th century.
2: Sure, and but you look at the region. So look at a place like South Korea. Look how South Korea's shift has fundamentally been transformed from, say, the post-war era, say the post-Korean war era, to the present. It's extraordinary. There are all kinds of trends that are worth looking at and embracing the positive qualities, although I do think it's reasonable to say that there is a fundamental or a potential ideological challenge by China's rise. It is a one-party state. It is a state that sees its Legitimate success in development as associated with centralized control, with enormous restrictions on personal liberties, and the U.S. views the answer to people's needs in a very different way. And until not that long ago, understood its vision: democracy, you know, open economies, competition, you know, state playing only certain roles in in society as the right model for you know improvement and growth, et cetera. You know there is a genuine competition out there ideologically, and it's incumbent upon the U.S. to come up with a narrative about why the values that we cherish, you know, really do produce a better outcome. Uh, the U.S. can conceivably come up with this answer, but it's it's a real
1: challenge. It's a challenge of the moment. And, and the democratic model as the ideal uh, uh, system of government to deliver the goods has over the last several years been subject to uh, a pretty uh pretty substantial challenge
2: in in a lot of different ways and some of those ways point to profound flaws within the u.s democratic system and Mm -hmm. democratic systems in different parts of the world you know but we i think it's really the u.s has not lost its leadership position in terms of in terms of many many factors still the vast majority you know more patents come out of the u.s u.s Entertainment industry is still dominant. The US produces is still the home base of, you know, the transformative technologies, at least of the recent era of the information revolution. It won't be forever.
1: Yeah. Um, and no, no question about all of that, but I was referring specifically the ability of a country to respond to a catastrophic event with with a planned singular response. Their argument has been, look at how how well we've done. And our, our own our own response to the pandemic, frankly, on a world basis, has been pathetic.
2: Well, certainly uh, the response to the pandemic has shown how important the state is, but it yeah. certainly isn't true that the Chinese centralized model has been the "quote unquote" winner. Let's look at New Zealand or Australia. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have incredibly positive overall responses. Both of them are, you know, relatively vibrant democracies. Yes. They Don't have that yes. ideological model mm-hmm. of the Communist Party yeah. of China. So, you know, I. The U.S. has failed miserably in its response to COVID. But one of the key takeaways is the difficulty the federal government had in taking control of the situation, messaging, you know, applying federal power. And some of that is our our system of you know federalism, and some of it is just the way in which the state the the executive managed that. But we've we've done a terrible job at that. 400,000 yeah. plus deaths.
1: I um, mean, I think the whole the whole idea of our system has been we distrust too much power in a, in a central source. And uh, there's another argument that says, wait, in, in the case of a pandemic, wouldn't it be good to have a little more centralized power to make, to, in, to make certain things that scientists and others are telling us are a rational response to this to be able to respond in a systematic fashion. But,
2: but we, don't, we don't actually mistrust centralized power for things we like, like interstate highways or the fact that airplanes can go from one place to another and not crash into each other, or the fact that, you know, think of all the things that knit together the country in a really vibrant and successful way. You know, those are taken for granted, and they rely on federal government and federal regulations. If anything is a takeaway, a positive takeaway, of the disaster that has been our experience with COVID-19, it should be how, how essential state, action and state policies are for all sorts of security threats and for our need to expand our understanding of security to encompass, you
1: know, to to cover fundamental well-being. Health is key to that. Fair, fair point. And I think the, the point, I think I put it to, to rephrase that, uh, COVID is a, um, is a security threat to the country as, as much as any foreign, or maybe at the moment more than any foreign army. We'll be back for a, a concluding segment, Daniel Rothenberg, talking about foreign policy and the rest of the world.
0: People, wrong, and admit that the waters around you have grown. Accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone, For the times they are a changing. The
2: think tank. KTAR News on 923FM and KTAR.com.
1: Okay, we've been talking foreign policy with David Rothenberg, and uh, we've been sort of going around the world. Uh, One of the places we have not got to yet is one of the world's hotspots, the Middle East. uh, Set up. Uh, Donald Trump made a lot of concessions to Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister of Israel. What do you think is next? Do our relationships with Israel get strained? Trump did get some movements from the Gulf states trade off of uh, we'll recognize. Well, the one that stuck to my mind, the big one, which gave up something that was probably not one American in a thousand knows about, but Morocco has claim on some very resource rich places uh, just south of it in the, in the Southern Sahara and has a border dispute over it with a neighboring country. And uh, in exchange for Morocco recognizing Israel, the U S came down and said, okay, you know, we recognize your claim on all of those things. Um, Did you, uh, but he, he, but, but, no rapprochement with the uh sort of the frontline states but the gulf states which have been sort of privately frankly not privately sort of dealing with israel under under the uh, under the uh, radar anyway so what, what do you think happens in this area do we have a strain with israel uh, does biden backtrack on some of this do, do we move the, the does the embassy stay in jerusalem is that a done deal what what what, what do you see happening in that area and is any of it uh, a prospect for anything improving in that area? I guess
2: the interesting question for the Middle East is what's the metric for improving? Um, A lot has happened in the Middle East that was unexpected, say you know, the Arab Spring, um, the way in which the Syria conflict has played out. I think despite all the tension and discussion, US relations with Israel have been strong for so long and are such a bedrock relation for that region You know, I don't think there's been any point when U.S.-Israeli relations have been weak. They may have been contentious. There may be discussions. Frankly, politics in Israel is extraordinarily contentious uh, domestically. Um, So uh, in a certain sense, I don't know that the relationship is, it's probably some version of what it's been like for a while,
1: uh, it's interesting. I guess I might make... rephrase the question to say, if relationship. If there's any strain, is probably with the Netanyahu government that sure. may be on its way out anyway.
2: Sure. I mean Netanyahu is a complicated figure, and there will clearly be some strains between Netanyahu and the Biden administration. You know, it's hard to figure out how to unpack what's happening in the Middle East. There's a lot of change in some ways, and you might argue a lot of failure to change in other ways. You know, to see how repressive the military dominated regime, military regime in Egypt has become, after the Arab Spring and all of its promise, is just depressing to reflect upon. To look at the war in Yemen is unbelievably painful to reflect upon. Um, The war in Syria, again, some of the dislocation and human suffering in the region has turned out to be so much worse than many thought early in, in, in just a few years ago. The fact that Iraq is in the state that it's in and that the U.S. has such bad relationships with Iraq after spending hundreds of billions of dollars on the, on, both, on the invasion and the reconstruction is a sort of extraordinary situation to be in. So one takeaway is to try to figure out, you know, what is the right way to project U.S. power in the world and in that region? Clearly, military force has certain pa- certain effects, but it's proven to be enormously inadequate for a lot of purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly where the Middle East is going is uncertain as usual. The role the US can play is complex. Obviously, the US is gonna have an enormously significant role in everything that's going on. But I would like to see a greater engagement with humanitarian concerns in the region. The suffering on the ground of people in the Middle East, the the poor, the unemployed youth, the it is it's it's really quite shocking uh given how much energy the u.s places on the region and a focus in that direction not not an no ability to solve those problems they're profound structural problems but an indication of focus a kind of recommitment to human rights and humanitarian issues would really be refreshing and i think overall positive for you know shifts in that area
1: Let me pick up on that and tie it back to way back to our first segment, our complaints about the amounts, the the percentages that the Europeans devote to their own uh, defense. If you look at it holistically in terms of and, and if you only look at spending on arms, we we dwarf them on a percentage basis. But if you look at the humanitarian contributions to what you just mentioned there, it is in that area that we are the pikers, and if you look at the totality of it, there's a certain amount of equity in that 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 we you know if it's we need troops somewhere well we are we are the one country in the world that's in a position to send in troops to to handle some problem, and so our military contribution is higher but on, but that is that is matched by a far more generous contribution of the Europeans towards humanitarian assistance.
2: Overall, if we could take a step back and reconceptualize security to be a broader concept, in fact, there's even a terminology called human security widely used in the United Nations that understands security as not only how many guns you have and and all of those, those elements of defense, But it involves, you know, it takes into consideration education and health and overall well-being. You know, one of the big takeaways of the COVID-19 pandemic and the devastation in this country is just how unequal access to to health benefits uh, are within our society, whether it's access to insurance or access to adequate care. And, you know, a lot of the risk that people have faced and the death that people have suffered, the illness, has to do with inequalities of our own system, that we would be, you know, if we could address those, we would be a stronger, more secure nation. In fact, around the world, we will have greater security if we understand security that way and don't focus only on weapons and military capacity of which we
1: have exceptional abilities. We have exceptional ability. And, and one of the things that, that's a part of that is what has always been co- uh, called soft power which is our uh, reputation in the world as a country that is worth emulating.
2: The U.S. still holds that in many parts of the world. People still want to come to the U.S. to live and to work and to study. Uh, It's been, it's that those desires and that reputation has taken a hit, but I don't think it's by any means, you know, it hasn't been, certainly not destroyed. It hasn't even, I think, been harmed that substantively. There are so many elements of the American vision that are appealing around the world. And I think that is what an area that the U S can build upon, although it's, you know, we need to be a better model for the world.
1: Thank you very much. Andrew Rothenberg. If you want to contact me, uh, there's a website, Mike O'Neill.org, And I, if you go to that site at the bottom of it, there's a, there's a little icon for Twitter or, uh, Facebook or LinkedIn and, uh, uh, again, thanks, Daniel Rothenberg. It's been very enlightening. Hope Hopefully we'll have you back uh, as we get to see the evolution of foreign policy with a new presidency. Thank you very much. See you next week in thinking.
0: And admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving. And you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a